from Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and am the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. Today we sit down with Margaret Crome as she shares the inspiring story of her journey to become a national leader in sustainable agriculture policy. From her family farming roots growing citrus in Florida to the Peace Corps to eventually rooting in Wisconsin, thanks in part to a night of polka dancing. Hear how her various experiences in grad school led to working in policy and the importance of us farmers taking an active advocacy role. Margaret Crome is Policy Program Director for the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute in East Troy, Wisconsin. She works with the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition to develop programs and policies supporting environmentally sound, profitable, and socially responsible agriculture. She also conducts workshops nationwide on grant writing and using federal programs to support sustainable agriculture. Since October 2018, Margaret has served as Interim Coalition Director for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. We are here with Margaret Crome today in, in her living room, actually. Thank you for letting myself, invite myself over, Margaret, um, and appreciate your time to share your story with our In Her Boots podcast, where we really look at issues within the food system, both farming, but policy, which I know you love, mm-hmm. and other ways that particular we as women in the sustainable agriculture community can collaborate, can activate, can change things. And you are a, a, a mentor, a pioneer, a, a legend mm-hmm. in all this, and we are honored to have you here. So thank you for allowing me to join your oh, illustrious group. You bet. You bet. And I'd love to hear your story because you didn't, I mean, you don't come from a farming, farming roots, if I'm remembering, right? Or, I mean, farming. Indirectly, Indirectly. I like most of us indirectly do. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But how, where where did you start and sort of sure. the, how did things how did lead here? Up? We can take it wherever you like. Yeah. Sure. So in a way I do, did and do, in, in the respect that my grandfather homesteaded in Homestead, Florida. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he and my grandmother raised avocados, were very instrumental early in the avocado industry in South Florida. And they raised avocados and Persian limes and mangoes and citrus. Well, of course, the citrus industry ultimately moved further north in Florida. But my cousin still is a very major avocado grower in Florida. NAFTA kind of knocked us out of the mango industry and the Persian lime industry. But we still have a lot of avocado groves there. So I was raised in Virginia, not in South Florida. And so I saw those. uh, I would love to go visit. I mean, we all just loved that part of our family's connection 
but it wasn't a daily part of my life, and it um, may or may not have influenced me. I was an English lit major when I was in college, but somewhere in my sophomore year, I had this yearning to take botany. I actually don't know why, but I did. And I went to the University of Virginia, which is not a land-grant school, does not have a botany department. And um, I just got one itinerant botany professor who happened through or after another. And uh, just, I think they had one botany professor on staff. So periodically someone would come through. And then I went to a um, biological station that the university has and studied a lot of botany all one summer. It was glorious. And I, I realized that's where my passions lay, but I'd already gotten so far along in my degree that I thought, come on, hang in there, you know, just do it. So I, I just followed up and stayed being an English lit major. But comes a time I was, I, I was working in Washington uh, as a lobbyist, working for a poverty legal aid group called the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. And uh, truthfully, I found it kind of pretentious. Not the group, not the people right there, but the world of policy in Washington was for me rather off-putting. Mm. I loved it. I did work, good work. I thought it was important issues. It was right at the end of the Carter administration and the beginning of the Reagan administration. So fascinating tumult to witness mm. and be witness and part of. But I really thought, you know, I don't think I could be, I guess I'll say my authentic self um, there for a lifetime. I thought, I just don't think I want to live with the kind of what pretensions that I saw seeming to govern a lot of people's lives in my community. Yeah. And I thought, that's that's really not me. And I went through one of those processes called What Color Is Your Rainbow? <laughs> is, no, What Color Is Your Parachute? Pardon me. That's what it is. A kind of a, what do I really care about exercise? And, I, and, and in the meantime, I had been taking every little forestry course, every, everywhere I went, I was taking these courses. And by that time, I had come to amass quite a number of them. And um, this, this little workshop on who do I want to become, at least professionally speaking, made it clear to me that I really wanted to do international resources management work. And being in Washington, there, everybody's response was programmatic. Oh, you should be in the Peace Corps. <laughs> and explore that question. And I thought it actually made sense before I invested in graduate school and mm. to refine my understanding of what I wanted to do. So I became an agroforester in Cameroon in the Peace Corps. Really? It was such a wonderful job. So hard. All the things they've always said about the Peace Corps that it was it was for me. It was really tough and absolutely formative. And I only discovered this, that I am a person who wants to have her roots down in the ground. I do not want to be itinerant. And the p most international development work, you might be in one community for three years at the most. Four is unusual. It's much more common to be there for two years. Because they don't, I mean, most of these, you know, most of these international organizations follow that, agencies and organizations. And that, I just realized that there was an inherent conflict for me in that, that I wasn't going to be happy following that mode, that I really wanted a place where I was and where I put my roots down, and that was my community. It's very important to me. So I tried to translate what I loved into stateside terms and applied to a whole bunch of graduate schools from my tiny little village my tiny little town, and to, what, to my utter surprise, I got into them all. 
And then how do you choose? So I just decided to get an Amtrak pass and tour the country and look at all these different schools. And I hit Madison, Wisconsin in almost exactly this time of year. It was just uh, earlier in the week. It would have been the 5th of December, 1985, back from the Peace Corps. And it was snowy here, and everyone here was kvetching about the snow. How... <laughs> Some things don't change, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it had come, it had been a rainy fall, and then the snow came immediately. Lots of farmers hadn't been able to harvest their crops. And there was just a lot of, you know, upset about that, and people already complaining about the winter. But I had come from a very hot place. I was very excited, and we went polka dancing. <laughs> And I swear, I think it was the polka dancing as much as all of the great brown bag, you know, workshops I went to. We had so many wonderful, I just was excited by the intellectual ferment and the tradition of family farming here. That was hugely important to me. And that was your first real experience with Wisconsin. That was my only experience. I I share that that part of the story because it drew me in too. Do you know there's something about this place and it's in a lot of different places, but the bottom line is... Finding a place that you click with, right? That feels like home. And that's how I felt about Wisconsin. I'm like, I don't know anybody here. I don't have relations here, but I feel at home here. Funny, isn't it? And whatever your community may be, travel till you find it. But Well, I fell in love with it instantly and I never have felt otherwise. It was absolutely love at first sight for me in this in this state. And I have always and the funny thing is, years later, I was going down to a small farm conference in St. Louis. And some friends said at the time, you know, don't fly, Margaret. We don't see enough of you. Come on, take the van with us. So we went in the van and we went by this town, Edwardsville, which is just across the Mississippi from St. Louis, where the conference was. And I thought, ding, 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 Edwardsville. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't there a family member there? And I called my folks that evening and they said, oh, yes, sure enough, that's Helen Delegate. And I called her up that evening. She remembered exactly who this 90 something year old lady knew exactly who I was with no context whatsoever in my calling. And I discovered that that actually were, was where my roots were. That's where my grandfather had come from. Oh, he was raised in South. He was raised in South Southern Illinois. And in fact, we had a long history. So I kind of say, Hey, I'm coming back home. Indeed. It's Midwest is my place. So anyway, that's where I came here and I tra- I translated those issues that I care about, resources management, sustainable. So what were you in resources graduate school for? What program? Or- it was what's now the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. And in those days, it was just the Institute of Environmental Studies. And I uh, was in what's called the Land Resources Program. That too has changed its name. But it became, it was just fascinating I came at a time when the sustainable ag movement hadn't yet got capital S, capital A in front of it. Much less organic, oh, yet, no, not. (laughs) But we didn't, and it was just defining itself. And it just was dumb luck that I happened to emerge in my career situating at the time. And so it was exactly what I cared about. The things that I, I look back years later at my application for for grad school and the things that i described myself caring about were environmentally sound practices where farmers can sustain them economically over time in a way that is socially responsible in communities and society well that is actually the same set of concerns that governs my thinking to this day and 
I think I'm lucky that the sustainable agriculture community was sufficiently formative that it was no effort to speak of to help find a place. We were in the middle of the farm crisis of the 1980s here in the state of Wisconsin, in the upper Midwest. And the group that I am now very actively work, have worked with now for 30 years and helped form, in fact, the National Sustainable Ag Coalition emerged from that. And from that crisis, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's where it came from. So you, you have always uh, been involved in different roles from the advocacy perspective, like working with various nonprofits. It sounds like, or forming nonprofits, mm-hmm. or forming coalition groups uh, with Wisconsin roots, but national mm-hmm. perspectives. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny? When I came here to grad school, I was not expecting to be doing policy work. I had left Washington because I didn't want to do it, actually. And it was that I was looking for an internship. There was a group called the Wisconsin Rural Development Center that had an intern. And I saw that and thought, ooh, that's pretty neat. It looks like a really interesting internship. And I interviewed for it. And the things I was thinking I would be doing – Yeah, well, maybe I would be doing them, but that's not why he hired me. He hired me for my quote-unquote Washington experience, which I have to say my heart sank. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I thought I was getting away from the Washington experience. I think I'd probably imagined I might be an extension agent or, you know, I was going to be working with farmers directly. (laughs) But you know what? I always look back and think Tom Lamb, who was the director of WRDC, He was right. He must have somehow perceived, intuited somehow that I really do care about that. Because in fact, he's right. I love thinking structurally about what are the underpinnings for advancing the things that we care about in sustainable agriculture. And not all of them are policy. Many of them are market-based. Some of their other other big structural... um, frameworks in which we operate and that one can influence. But policy is a big one. And he was right. And I didn't have much choice at the time. I was a poor graduate student and needed the work anyway. But I quickly found that it one doesn't have to be pretentious. One doesn't have to surround oneself with that kind of a milieu. And I've always loved it. I've never felt sorry that I pursued this. It was always the right Um, area of work for me. And I have worked for WRDC, that was the Wisconsin Rural Development Center. And then um, after working for them nine years, I began to work for the group I now work for, which is the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, doing the same work. For years and years, I coordinated the appropriations grassroots campaign around the country for the sustainable ag movement. And um, I did it first for WRDC, and then I did it for Michael Fields, and I did state policy work, too. Um, but I made my first constituent call because of you. <laughs> hey, there you go. That's I love hearing that. Oh, yeah. No, no. There, there's, there's lots of that out there, Margaret. But, but that's always been a part of your drive, too, right, to activate farmers. Totally. Particularly farmers to advocate for these issues. Stakeholders, I would say. I guess yeah. that's what I would say is that I think... I mean, I mean, I am a, just a pure, solid uh, believer in democracy, in representative democracy. What it comes down to is that's what drives me, what inspires me. I believe we have a system by which 
we can influence our lives and make society better, make our environment healthier, create a life for our future generations that we can, in peace, when we are really elderly, pass along and feel that we have loved being alive and we're passing on a world that others will love living in. And that's through democracy that we are able to make that influence, make that difference. And I believe in it deeply. I, I lived it when I lived in D.C. The one thing I must say coming from D.C. was I witnessed so many times where individuals could make a difference. And I, have, I, I, I took it in deeply and I believe it into my core. Even in the rough times, we can make a huge difference. And that means that I am a believer in helping institutions be strong institutions. And so a lot of my work, you know, I've, we'll probably talk more about some of the state policy work I've done, but, you know, some of the institutions I've helped to create are all about helping to create platforms through which people can empower themselves. That's what I love. And sometimes we're more successful than other times. But if, if you don't make the effort... I used to say to a, there was a funder of mine who was saying, so, you know, kind of like, what can you prove to me you will do on appropriations? And I used to say, I can't prove, I can't commit to anything. I can tell you what we will do, but I feel like it's like a, it's like a wall in front of us. And if you're not there ready to slither through that crack in the wall, when a crack opens up, there will be no advance. But if you are there, Sometimes there's no crack that opens up. There's sometimes not the opportunity. <laughs> but if you're not prepared for that opportunity, then you surely won't go forward. And so I'm always thinking about how to create the capacity so that if we can make the stars align, we can make good things happen. And be ready when that happens. And two, you, you show us that there's a lot of roles that people can play in the sustainable ag community. I mean, we need farmers, yes, but we also need advocates and organizers and people in various roles, right? I mean, in all the story mm -hmm. you've been sharing, that there wasn't a, it was even a desire, but there just wasn't, there were people out in the field doing that work. You recognized that there were other roles that needed to be taken on and other skill sets and talents you had that could work to support that. Just as you do, Lisa, it's the same sort of thing as I see it. You know, sometimes I've talked to uh, people, I get every, every year or so asked to give a talk about what career opportunities there are in this world. And um, one of the things I say is that if you want to be an advocate, there are lots of ways to be an advocate. You don't have to work for a nonprofit to be an advocate. You can be a farmer and be an advocate, or you can build your career and be an advocate. But some of the other kinds of advocates include communications. That's what you do. And think of all the ways that you've opened up. You have made this movement um, understandable and transparent and a point of engagement for people who might not have considered the excitement of the food that they choose as a political point of political decision. Yeah. And who have not understood the role that they're playing in the culture we're creating around food and sustainable agriculture in urban and rural places. And you communicate those things so well just through this kind of a, a podcast, but many other ways you have over the years, your books, your 
workshops. Oh, thank you. That's advocacy too. And There's so finding, many ways that we all do these different things. And finding where one's strengths and passions merge, right? Which yeah, right. For you, I mean, from your story, it happened early on the roots of it, but it's been evolving and changing as you've gone too. One big thing that's changed for me is about the fact that our movement started in the upper Midwest, as I said, in the after the farm crisis. And so we cared about helping farmers be profitable, keeping their soil from eroding. Because of course, in the mid 80s, we were having farmers being given this terrible advice about how to farm to get bigger and bigger, at, at no matter what the cost to the environment and so on. And, you know, social implications. We had all those three issues, but what we didn't perceive at the moment, but we now can look back and see clearly, our movement policy, sustainable ag policy movement, really did start in the rural communities of the upper Midwest, which are demographically largely white. And one of the big things that I have really felt now for about 15 years is that we need to be very intentional about not allowing the stakeholders who have built themselves as stakeholders around the work that we all started to do at that period, to can't allow that engagement to blind us to the fact that we have other stakeholders who may be unknowing stakeholders. They may not know that the work we do affects them and can affect them. And we need to be intentional about diversifying and working hard to bring people of color into the movement and in leadership positions and all sorts of ways. And that's a big part of a change in the work I've done the last. Well, that's perfect because we will close today and start on that topic and dial deeper into diversity in our next episode. So thank you, Margaret. Great. (laughs) Perfect. Thanks for listening to our In Her Boots podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest with the Moses In Her Boots project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of techsocket.net. The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, Moses. The mission of Moses is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable, organic system of agriculture. For more information on Moses, In Her Boots, and a bounty of organic resources, check out mosesorganic.org.